0: The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org.
1: Please remain standing for the reading of the Word. John fifteen eighteen 18-27 If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. They hated me without cause, but when the helper comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning.
0: Thank you, Dave. You guys can have a seat. I encourage you to turn to John 15. If you're just joining us. For the first time, we've been in the Upper Room Discourse over the last couple of weeks. And what we're we're looking at in the Upper Room Discourse is uh, a runway to Jesus' departure. And before he departs his disciples, before he leaves them, he wants to prepare them for that departure. And so we've seen him preparing his disciples and us for his departure. We started by looking at how Jesus wants us to live, what his desire for our life is, and we got to see him illustrate that in a a gospel analogy by uh, washing his disciples' feet. We got to see that loving each other and Christ-like service and sacrifice is what he wants us to do. Next, we got to see how Jesus has protected us by sending us his helper, a helper that is fit to walk with us through this life, protecting us every step of the way. Last week, we saw the power that we have and the abiding presence of christ that we're in him that we're abiding with christ and we got to see that now that we are a part of the vine and that we are cared for by the by the vine dresser that the vine dresser will n- never leave us nor forsake us well today as dave just read we're turning our attention to a rather difficult subject a subject of persecution of suffering jesus again wants to remind and empower his disciples so that when he leaves they're not going to be caught off guard He wants to make sure that when they are walking through this life, when things come at them, they are not going to be shocked by, oh my goodness, this is happening to us. You know, we also uh, mentioned last week that every time there's movement in this discourse, that the subject somewhat changes. Like there was movement when Jesus got up from the table and we got to see his gospel analogy. There's movement with Judas leaving the room, which is when we got to see uh, that he's going to send us a helper. Last week, we saw that there's movement again. His disciples and him are are on the way to the garden that they're walking through this and that movement is 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 really pointing with from jesus to his disciples and to us that the, the 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 life that we're living in christ is not a life that we live in isolation it's a life that we live in this world and so today we get to look at a rather difficult subject we get to look at what it means to live a life for christ in a hostile world Now, just connecting it back to last week, what we saw last week is that now that we're grafted into the vine, that's the language that we used last week. Now that we're grafted into the vine, when the vine is attacked, the branches, you and I, are going to feel the effects. Because this world hated Christ, it will also hate the children of Christ. This language is shocking. Just as you're reading through the gospel of John, as you're reading through the upper room discourse, as you're going through all this stuff. It's shocking to kind of get to this and go like, ooh, man. I mean, this is a heavy sermon. I mean, if you're joining us for the first time, I'm just going to recognize that this is a heavy subject. Persecution, the fact that the world is going to hate us. But it's not a new subject in the gospel. We can see all the way back at the very beginning, John 3. Jesus was very clear about the offensiveness of his message. He was very clear that the world was not going to like him, was not going to appreciate him, was going to try to overwhelm him. We got to see this in John 3. Here's here's what it says in John 3, 19 through 21. This is the judgment. Light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light. So that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Jesus, in here in John 15, is stating very plainly what he said even in John 3. It's the very first verse of our section. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. It's a gut check moment for all of us. But especially for Jesus' followers In in that moment, what he's saying to his disciples is it's going to get worse. Imagine that. Imagine hearing that. Walking with Jesus, hearing that he's leaving, seeing all that you've seen, hearing about this death thing that he's been talking about. And Jesus is saying it's going to get worse. And it did. Because what we can see in church history, I, I could, I, I, I thought about one way to kind of attack this sermon is to look at church history as the example of just all of the moments of suffering and persecution throughout church history. And what we can see through all of those moments is that Jesus is victorious and that he carries us through. But even Peter, before his death, after he's hearing this for the first time in John 15, but then as he's writing First Peter to those believers, here's what he says in 1 Peter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trials when they come upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings so that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Do not be surprised. That's what he said to the believers. Do not be surprised. When not uh inconveniences happen when not disagreements happen when not arguments happen no do not be surprised when what fiery trials happen i love that language because he's trying to paint this picture that's not daisies and roses but weighty do not be surprised when fiery trials happen but here's what's interesting aren't we surprised aren't we constantly surprised when we're living our life for Christ and we're walking through this broken world and we encounter persecution suffering hatred for our, our belief in Christ aren't we surprised when that happens I, I I know I am I'm totally caught off guard by it almost every time and I even struggle to say don't be surprised when I've when I've gone through persecution because even that when I when I compare my life and the lives of so many other believers even now in other countries who are truly being killed for the faith and persecuted for the faith i mean i even struggle to say that that uh i'm i've i've suffered for christ in that way because my life has been so easy and yet i'm surprised i'm surprised when john fifteen eight comes true because here's the thing we might not all suffer to the same degree as others we might not all go through the same persecution but hatred from the world is the norm That's what we just got to read here in John 15. So here's what I want to do for us this morning, just kind of give us a a structure to work through this passage together. Here's what we're going to see as we break down this passage. It's going to be kind of three aspects. We're going to look through three questions. The first one is this, why is there persecution, or what causes this persecution? The second question is going to be, who is doing the persecuting? And then the third is going to be, how are we helped through this persecution? So again, why, who, and how, those are the three questions. So, First, why is there persecution? Why is Christ so offensive that the response to Christ and to his followers is hatred? I think that question, even in our society, is an interesting one because so often what we see is that Christians try to downplay the offensiveness of Christ and his church. So often we try to make Christ more palatable to this world, we, we're surprised when people hear the message of the gospel, hear about the love of Christ, hear about all the things that, that the world has. And the response to it is hatred because we try so much to make Christ look lovely, helpful, gentle, and loving. And in doing so, I think we can forget and be surprised by the offensiveness of who he is. I, I was kind of thinking through how to describe this, and, 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 and an analogy came to mind that, honestly, Jesus has been using from the very beginning. Light versus darkness. Imagine, dads, because it's Father's Day, I'm going to direct it towards you, that you're taking, not taking a nap, you're, you're sleeping in the middle of the night, soundly sleeping, all is quiet. You have the room set just right. You're in the south, so probably a fan's on somewhere, but it's dark. There's, you know, there's no stirring. You have as much room in the bed as you possibly want. The temperature is set just right. You are comfortable Is all get out. And then somebody comes in your room and doesn't turn on the bedside light or doesn't turn on the overhead light or doesn't turn on a nightlight or a light outside the room. No, it turns on a spotlight, one of the brightest spotlights that you could possibly get and shines it directly at you. What would your response be? Not the Christian response. What would your actual response be? Right? You're throwing pillows. What the? I just, you'd immediately be offended by this. You'd be shut it off. I hate that you were quiet. It was dark. You were sleeping soundly. And then all of a sudden somebody shines a light on you and exposes you. And you're going, I hate this. Now imagine if you saw that same spotlight in the middle of a bright, sunny day. You'd be like, oh, okay, whatever. That's not that bad. That's what's happened to this world. In John 1.19, we can see that this, th- the light of Christ has upset everyone's pleasant existence in the darkness. This is what it said all the way back in the prologue. John was, was um, uh, setting us up for this whole understanding. Here's what he says in John 1.9. The true light. And so when you see that, the spotlight, the actual the bright light, burning glory of light that we have never experienced before the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world and he was in the world and the world was made through him yet the world did not know him he came to his own and his own people did not receive him but all who did receive him who believed in his name he gave the right to become children of god who were born out of blood or the will of the flesh nor of the will of man but of god the light of christ is offensive regardless of how palatable we can make him, because it exposes the darkness. And the world's natural reaction to sin and shame when it is exposed is to try to destroy the light, right? That spotlight shines on you in the middle of the night. You're picking up pillows, trying to knock it away from your face. You're trying to hide yourself from it because you don't like that it's there. It hurts, it's blinding. Jesus is warning his children in this moment of what is to come. The world will try everything in its power to kill the light, and they won't stop until it's out. Now, newsflash, it's never going to be out, so that's why persecution and hatred is never going to stop. But no matter how hard they try or how deep their hatred is for the light, it will always be present in the world. Now, why are we hated for it? Because it's not our light. Uh, you know, I'm I'm not carrying around, naturally speaking, the this, this spotlight. So why are we hated for it? Because of the change that's happened in us. The offensiveness of Christ's children is also based upon the position that we formerly held as believers. The reason that we receive this hatred is not only because we're in the vine and therefore whatever happens to the vine also happens to the branches. But think about the position that we formerly held, compared to the position that we currently hold. This is what Colossians 1, 21 through 22 says, after just proclaiming the preeminence of Christ, Paul, Paul says, And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled you in his body of flesh, by his blood, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in him. You who were once alienated and, and hostile in mind. The other way to say that you who were once allies and partners of the darkness. Christ came to you. And chose you. And adopted you. And called you as his own. And grafted you into his vine. And when the world sees that. When the world sees your changed state. Sees your change heart sees your change actions. The world hates you because it doesn't know what to do with you. Because when the Lord called you out of darkness, he put his light in you. So now as you walk around on this earth, you are emanating the light of Christ from yourselves. So you are exposing the darkness. You are exposing the sin. And they want to shut your light off just like they want to shut Christ's light off. Here's what D.A. Carson said about all this. He said, Christ's followers will be hated by the same world, partly because they are associated with the one who is supremely hated, and partly because as they increase in the intimacy, love, obedience, and fruitfulness depicted in the preceding verse, you know, think back to 1517, they will have the same effect on the world as their master. They too will appear alien. I want to go on a quick rabbit trail for a minute before we jump to point two. What if the world doesn't hate you? What if you get along with the world? What if you don't experience the effects of exposing sin and darkness? An interesting question, right? What if being too nice? What if you're fitting in too much? You know, 519, or 1519, Goes on and says, okay, so if the world hates you, you, know that it's hated me also because it hated me before it hated you. If you were, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Let's reverse that verse. If you flipped it, what he would be saying is if the world loves you, it's because you're of the world. It's because you fit into the world. I think it's a really good moment to have kind of a gut check moment and to ask yourself and this is just between you and yourself but are you carrying yourself in the world in a manner that's a void that avoids struggle that avoids suffering that avoids persecution are you trying to fit in so much to avoid the pain that's caused by standing out now first i have to say it's natural for, for us to try to avoid pain, so that, I, I get why we have to struggle, but I mean, think about it. Do you actively avoid speaking out about Christ, or your faith, or prayer, or the Bible, at work, or with your friends, at school, in your life, because you don't want the people around you to feel the awkwardness of having a Christian in their midst? Is this something that you actively try to go, don't ask me where I go on Sunday, or are you stuck in conversations where you, you know the Spirit is convicting you? I should probably leave, or I should say something, or I should do something different. But you remain quiet because you go, I don't want to be that person. I don't want to be that Christian. I don't want to be the, the, the buzzkill of the group. Do you sit there in silence in the presence of open sin? Because you don't want to offend the party who is sinning. Where what you could say is, hey, let me tell you a better way. Or third, do you value peace above everything else? And therefore, silence is the best course of action. This is just for you. I know in my own heart and life, I've been convicted of these things. You know, as a pastor, the the question you don't want to be asked at times is, what do you do for a job? Because it can be a real buzzkill. I've had to work through that. And I don't always do it perfectly. There are some times I'm like, okay, this is going to get real awkward. But it's a moment when we, as disciples of Christ, as lights to this dark world, get to go to places where the church, if you will, formal church in this way, aren't going to get. And that's because you're going to be interacting with people that wouldn't step foot in this church. And the opportunity that you have to interact with them in that moment is that you get to, to take the light of Christ, the grace of Christ, the truth of Christ to them. Yeah, it might hurt. You might get an awkward response. You might be avoided at some extent. You, you might, uh, you know, no longer have that relationship. I hope that's not the case because this also isn't an opportunity to be a jerk. There's that balance. you got to figure that out. But if the world doesn't have a problem with you I think that's a problem for Christ okay point two who is doing the persecuting this is actually the most interesting part of this passage in this first section I've been using the world that's the language I've been using it's you know us against the world Light against darkness. But who exactly is the world? Normally when we think of the world, what, what, what we're naturally going to define that as is the worst of the worst. The people who would never step foot in a church. People who are opposed to all sense of morality and decency, right? That's what we kind of think of. That's the caricature of the world that we hold in our mind. That's not who Jesus has in mind here. Now, Jesus is saying that the hatred is going to come from The good people, the moral people, dare I say, and I'm going to put this in quotes, the Christian people. Because the sad reality of this world is that the most harsh and hateful people are often religious people. Now, I know that's a bold statement, so let me prove that to you from the text. Verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep your words. Now, we've gone through a lot of stories in the Gospel of John. We've had a lot of arguments. We've had a lot of persecution. We've had a lot of people pushing back against Christ. Where did that all come from? The Pharisees. The most morally upright people in that time. That's who Jesus has been fighting with. That's who's been pushing back. That's who's going to be killing Jesus. It's not the Romans. It's the Pharisees. The people who had the greatest problem and hatred towards Jesus were the religious leaders and religious people. The people who accepted Jesus were those who were caught in sin. I mean, even look at what's this hatred going to look like. I'm going to add a little to our section this morning. I want to read the first couple of verses of 16. Here's what it says. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Essentially, I don't want you to be caught off guard when all this happens. Don't be surprised. For they will put you out of the synagogue. Indeed, the hour is coming. Whoever kills you will think that he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. I mean, he makes it crystal clear. The people are going to hate you the most. Are those who are going to kick you out of their religious establishments? I mean, Jesus turns everything on its head. He always does that. But normally, w- w- we have to fear the people that are very different from us. Now, Jesus is actually declaring that the most, the hatred is going to come from those who are close by. So then we can ask the question, well, why do the moral and decent people hate Jesus? Why is it that, that the religious leaders so struggled with Jesus and his message that, that they had to put him to death? I think it's this. Jesus exposed their sin in the same way that that bright, shining spotlight exposes that poor sleeping man who just wanted to get a good night's rest in bed, Jesus Came in and exposed the sin and shame of those people. And here's the thing the people who hate exposure the most are the same ones who think that they don't have anything to expose. The people who hate to actually see the real representation of who they are, to have the light shine fully on them and have everything fully known, are the people who don't think that they have anything to expose, they don't have anything to share. They are good to go. I mean, just again, back to the text, John 15, 21. All these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they did not know they didn't because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoke to them, they would not have been guilty of their sin. But now they have no excuse. Whoever hates me hates my father. If I had done, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did they would not be guilty of sin. But now that they have seen and hated both me and my father, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. What's Jesus talking about here? If Jesus hadn't showed up, the Pharisees would still be trusting in their works. If Jesus hadn't showed up, the Pharisees would still think that the hedge of protection that they, cr- that they created around the law, in their minds, was called the uh, Talmud, like 600 extra laws to make sure that, that they don't break God's law, was a good idea. If Jesus hadn't showed up, they would still be codifying everything in their life in order to please God. That's what, we, we have countless passages all over the Gospels about this, but when Jesus showed up, what he demonstrated to them was how far off they really were. Because what we've seen is that the moral people, that the decent people, that the Christian people, that the religious people are no better than the Samaritans, than the tax collectors, than the adulterers, or the Roman officials. Everyone needs the same thing that is the grace of God. That's what's so offensive about Christ. When you look at a person who has been living a dedicated and devoted life for God, and you look at them and you say, listen, you haven't done enough yet. It's demoralizing, and it is infuriating. And that is exactly what we're seeing here, and Jesus is warning his disciples about it. Listen, you're gonna walk around and say that your only path towards God is by grace through faith in Christ alone. What people are going to take from that is, but I've been trying my hardest to be the best that I can, and what you're telling me is, that's no good? And the response is yes. They're going to want to pick up stones to stone you. Third. Third question. Because you hear all this, and it's like, I warned you guys. Heavy, right? Like imagine talking, parents, talking to your kids about this that are sitting over here on this row Going, whoo, it's a difficult life. Imagine just explaining this to somebody coming into Christ, and you're like, wait a second, but what you're saying is, if I accept Christ, then I'm going to be hated, and how am I going to handle all of that? That seems like a weight that will overwhelm me. Well, that's why we have the third thing. How are we helped through this persecution? Jesus once again returns to the paraclete, to the helper. Verse 26, but when the helper comes, Whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father. He will bear witness about me, and you will also bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. The sweetness of these verses cannot be missed. Because again, as Jesus is preparing for his departure, and he's thinking about all that's going to happen, and he keeps jumping around, and okay, you're going to have this helper, and okay, here, here's, here's how, how you should live your life in service, and okay, well, you, you're, you're going to be part of the vine. he returns to the Holy Spirit here because he knows that the weight that he just placed upon his disciples' shoulders will break them if they are trying to do it all by themselves. But what he says is, listen, you're not going to be alone. This struggle and journey is not something that you have to handle on your own power. You are safe in my hands. You are safe in the vine. Think for a moment about the Great Commission. I've quoted the first part a lot recently. All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you. You Know what the last phrase of the Gospel of Matthew is? Maybe it was the last thing Jesus ever said to his disciples on the mountain. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I mean, just think about what Jesus is proclaiming here. My helper, the Holy Spirit, all that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, who proceeds from the Father. Now, I just want to dive into that word for a second. He could say, who's been sent by my Father. But that's like Jesus or God saying, okay, this guy over here, he'll go down there. No, he says proceeds. Sent and proceeds are a little different. I could send you a letter, but if something's going to proceed from me, it's going to be part of me. This is Jesus saying that God is giving us something that is a part of God. This is Trinitarian language. In the same way that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are all together, the Holy Spirit proceeds from God and will bear witness about me through you. You see, as Jesus is walking around on this earth and people are questioning Jesus at this time, what did he do? He did... Some miracles. And those miracles were there to prove that what he said was actually true. Well, now you flip this, and Jesus is gone, and these disciples could be going, how are we going to prove this thing, that this was actually true? Now, they're about to have the resurrection, and that is a giant illustration and evidence that the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. But what we also see, like, in the book of Acts, is all of these other miracles happening to the disciples through the disciples, to the church, that illustrate that, that that is an evidence of yes, God is here and this is true. Now, some of the miracles have stopped. That's what we hold to here. They stopped. But the spirit's actions have not stopped. Recently, um, Amy's been reading this book. It's audiobook, so I l- I was listening to it last night while driving to a to a um, Nashville SC game. And it's on George Mueller. And George George Mueller was a missionary in Europe, and he is known for uh, his child adoption, having orphanages. And I mean, he he uh, cared for thousands and thousands of kids. But the other thing that he's known for is never asking once for resources. He never he would never ask anyone, "I need money to feed these kids." I need money to, be, to build a bigger house. I need money to be able to care for all of these kids that are with me. No, he would never ask anyone for money. Who he did ask was God. And story after story after story that was in this book and even kind of in the last couple of chapters that I got to listen to is just how the Holy Spirit and God showed up and demonstrated not only to him and to the kids, but to the city around them that Jesus is real. I mean, one in particular, he sat down at a table for dinner, and there's no food in front of them because they didn't have any food in the house, and they prayed for the meal. And then the doorbell rang, and somebody had a full ham and said, here you go, we just wanted to give this to you. I don't have that, that kind of faith. I, it, that's just like mind-blowing to think. But that is exactly what Jesus just promised us, I'm going to send you a helper who proceeds from the Father, and he will bear witness about me, and he will be with you. Saints, you carry that helper in you today. That declaration that I said last week stands true today. God will never leave you nor forsake you. I mean, just think parents. We're in that season where there's graduations happening, a couple people going off to college. and You know, as parents, we, we have to gradually release our kids from our grasp. We have to give them more and more responsibility, and at the same time of giving them more and more responsibility, we have to open them up more and more to just the struggles of this world. As a parent, that's really difficult for me to see because I just want to keep them on lockdown. I don't want them to experience the pain that we all know is there. And a part of parenting is... Letting them go, understanding that we're not always going to be there with them, and so they're going to have to figure this out on their own. That's not how God parents us. That's not how God cares for us. It's not this slow release the longer that we're in Christ to handle things on our own, and we've got to do it. No, what he says is from the very beginning, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He's not releasing us to this world He's holding us in this world. This is a tough passage because of suffering, because of persecution, because of pain, because it means that we're going to stand out. It means that we're going to have to deal with things that we don't like, but what we can see in it is that our Savior, our God, is holding us through this life, and we can trust in that. I know this has been an an encouragement to my own soul this week. I hope that it was to yours. As we just turn our attention towards communion, we have the opportunity to be reminded of where our hope rests. Because if you're trusting in your ability to make it through life, if you're trusting in your ability to figure out all the steps from here to heaven, if you're trusting in your ability to make sure that you make all the right decisions, I'll pray for you. That's tough, because you don't have that ability. But what we get to trust in as believers is not our life, but the finished work of Christ. And so as we take this table together, that's what we will be pointing to. If you're here for the first time and you have not placed your faith in Christ, we would ask that you just let these elements pass you by. We don't want them to confuse you. This doesn't save us. This doesn't fill us up. This is a reminder for us of where our hope lies. But if you are a A believer, if you have placed your faith in Christ, we would welcome you to take this table with us. Let's pray and we can take these elements. Lord, thank you for the spirit. Thank you for the peace of Christ. Thank you for your ability to strengthen us, to hold us fast. Lord, for those of us who are weak and struggling and questioning what's happening in life, Lord, strengthen us today. Show us that you are real. Strengthen our faith in you to know that that you are are with us even in the valley of the shadow of death. Strengthen us to realize that you are with us even on the mountaintops, even in those happy moments, even in those times when um, everything is going well. And Lord, I would just pray that you would use us. Use us to be lights to a dark world. Strengthen our faith and our conviction enough to stand out. Lord, give us opportunities this week where we can not hide our light, but proclaim our light. Where we can have gospel conversations, where we can
1: proclaim your hope and glory to the people who desperately need it. For more information, please visit
0: us at 6005 Edmondson Pike in Nashville, Tennessee, or online at cbcnashville.org.